I remember listening to that and just being like, what the hell? It felt like like that was the moment where overnight everything changed. That was like a moment of like, holy shit, it's happening. In the previous episode, 360 and Styles had finished their work on Falling and Flying. But in the mixing process, 60 suffered a near-fatal accident. The album mixing was disrupted, and the duo realised that, actually, the album wasn't done. In this episode, we'll hit the studio to create the album's biggest single. We'll ride with 360 to the top of the charts, and quickly realise that fame isn't all it's cracked up to be. I'm your host Steve Duck, and this is Classic Material, the making of Falling and Flying, presented by G-Shock. With some extra time granted after missing their deadline, 60 and Styles went back to the studio. They added a handful of new tracks, doubling down on 60's pure rap skills to balance the indie rock, electronic and pop influences throughout the album. It couldn't all be big singles. One very big single though, was Boys Like You. This is called Boys Like You, let's do it. Yeah, so we had these fellas come in and they'd made this song. It was just an acoustic guitar and him singing. And there was this section. It was like, my mama always told me, papa always told me to mess around with boys. Like, it was something like that. It was just a tiny little, like, opening to a verse. So we heard it. We're like, oh, grab that. We started making this kind of jam to it. You know the track. You probably saw the video with Ruby Rose. But you might not know it all started with a scratchy demo track written by a member of one of Australia's first ever R&B groups, CDB. Weez explains. So Boys Like You came about in an unorthodox manner. So an artist here, Brad Pinto, had sent a song to me to pass to Styles to work on for him. And this is where I admire Styles so much, right? So, you know, I sent him the song to work on and it wasn't necessarily something that he wanted to work on. But the day after I'd sent it to him, I came in the room and he's like, oh, you know that song you sent me? I've sampled it for, for 60. What do you think of this? And I couldn't quite believe that, you know what I mean? It was kind of a ballsy move to make, to be like, no, I'm not going to work on your record, but I'll sample it for this Aussie rapper. You know, like, that's pretty crazy. So I do remember him making the beat out of what was sent. There wasn't any stems, I don't think. I think he just two-tracked what was there and just sampled it. So I'd gotten a few songs from these songwriters, and um, there was one in there which was the guitar and the chorus of Boys Like You. I just played it for 60 because I was like, there's something like cool about this vocal and this guitar that I think we could turn into something for him. Because I think initially I was like, I don't really hear how I could make this song into like a pitch, like a pop, pop pitch. Because I think that was the idea. It was like, oh, can Styles turn this into like a, a song that we can pitch to like a pop artist? So yeah, I think I just like played it for 60 and 60 was like, bro, that's crazy. Like we could flip the lyric around and like I could do it on some saying sorry to like ex-girlfriends or whatever it was type shit. I don't know how we decided that we're going to do a reggae 
song out of it, like a reggae beat. But um, there's a video somewhere. I remember there were sessions where we got Brad and two other writers in to work on the song to actually replay some stuff and do bits and pieces. I remember 60 writing to it, and I remember the first time I actually heard Boys Like You and was just like, all right, like, this is serious, you know? We were listening to a lot of Santa Golds, the first Santa Gold record, which kind of has this dub reggae influence that was kind of brought by Switch and Diplo, and you can hear the influence of that in the song. It was just one of those things. I mean, it's crazy to think about a reggae-influenced song that samples an unknown songwriter's track where 60 talks about, you know, all the girls that he has sex with. Boys Like You started with a great melody from Brad Pinto. It was pushed along by Wheeze and was turned into something unbelievable when Styles worked his magic and passed it on to 360. The next big brainwave in the chain came from Chris Farrar, who knew the hook needed a little extra seasoning. So we had the demo with this male falsetto on it, and it sounded great, but it was kind of weird to have a male singing that part because clearly it was being voiced from a female perspective, and that may have seemed questionable at the time. So we ended up looking for female singers, and I was listening to Triple J one day, and I heard a Gosling song on the radio. I think at the time when we were recording Falling and Flying, Gosling was an unearthed artist on Triple J. And I heard her voice and it had that that quality to it that was kind of almost childlike and very high-pitched. And I could hear it, you know, kind of recreating the demo version of the chorus, but with a really unique twist and something that could be a real earworm. So I ended up hitting up Gosling's manager. At the time, she was independent. It was very low-key. The manager had said, yep, she's down to do it, sent us the demo, she recorded something, I believe sent it back, some money changed hands at the time, a modest amount, and it, it, it ended up great, and it ended up being a really iconic chorus. And we liked it so much that she obviously came back for a second track on the album, and then she ended up doing Price of Fame with 360 down the track as well. So, yeah, I guess just hearing her on the radio sparked the idea and, and the rest is history. Getting the right vocals to do that that chorus, getting Gosling on that was so important because her voice is so unique. I don't know if that song would have been as successful as it was without her on there, you know, because no one can mimic her or make it sound like that. So that fell into place perfectly. This was a truly collaborative piece of work, with everyone bringing their own expertise to the table. Finally, Styles worked on the track a little more to beef up the hook with a whistle borrowed from an indie classic released a few years prior. I was doing the whistle. <laughs> I was any chance I could to pull the whistle out, I was like... <laughs> Nah, every 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 time we do a song and I kind of like get the feeling like, oh, this could be like, this could be something like a Peter Bjorn and John type thing. It really was just that. I think I just like was so like obsessed with like young kids and, th- and those songs of theirs and like different things in that same space that I was like, anytime something would suit the whistle, I'd just be like, yo, I got a whistle melody. <laughs> and, I, and we put it down and 60 would be like, like, bro, <laughs> shit's crazy. It's going to be a smash. Um, 
so yeah, we that was that was my additional like melody on um like whistle melody on boys like you, which I think definitely like kind of took it up a little another notch on that one. Styles, sixty, and the team were psyched on boys like you. They knew it was good, but sixty was already concerned about the way he was perceived at Triple J, and a track about being a serial womanizer wasn't going to help that. EMI shared his concern and held off on releasing Boys Like You as a single. 360's manager Mo agreed. Boys Like You was always the single man, um, but we were just worried that King's Mill, if he took that incorrectly, like people just calling up and asking for the song, he managed to take that the wrong way. How's he going to take a song about dudes that just bang women constantly? That was something I was like, they'll never play that on the radio. I was like, absolutely no way. It was my favourite joint. It was everyone's favourite song was at the time and we were playing it to all my friends and stuff. I'm like, this is so crazy. And I was just like, yeah, but they'll never play that, you know, but they did. EMI was nervous about it. There was a little bit of a, a player or reformed player kind of uh, quality to the lyrics that they were a little uncomfortable with at the time, at least as an introduction to the world. 360 already had an awkward relationship with Triple J, and Boys Like You didn't seem like the track to smooth things over. Somehow, though, the track made its way into rotation and took off in a big way. For whatever reason, Triple J weren't picking up the singles. Um, The takeoff, which was the initial single, didn't get a lot of love from them. They played it a couple of times. Subsequent singles, they weren't that hot on. It wasn't until Boys Like You that they actually picked it up and and ran with the ball, and I think they believed the hype was real at that point. Falling and Flying was released September 30, 2011. The momentum of the album, the singles, the fandom, the mixtapes, the battles, it had all led to this point. When Triple J counted down the annual fan-voted Hottest 100 in January 2012, 60 heard Throw It Away at number 84. He heard Killer at number 37. And finally, Boys Like You, the track nobody thought would work on Triple J, cracked the top 10. It came in at number eight. I feel like it was when the Triple J Hottest 100 came and we got, I think, number eight. (laughs) I remember listening to that and just being like, what the hell and everything it felt like like that was the moment where overnight everything changed like triple j had so much power at that time like there was just such a big deal every australia day hottest 100 just huge and if you got a song there like you're killing it you know you made it so that was like a moment of like holy shit it's happening like it's really really happening now like we'd already had some pretty good success with the with the first few few singles, but then that one, bang. As we've heard in the previous episodes, success on Triple J would often lead to success on mainstream FM stations. After the Hottest 100, 360 became irresistible to FM radio. They jumped on board and success quickly followed. Getting spins on Triple J was something local rappers could aspire to. Hottest 100 placement was a dream, but the Hilltop Hoods, Pears, and Bliss and Esso had proven it was possible. But like his vision wall at home, 360 had shattered all expectations. 
Falling and Flying peaked at number four on the Australian album chart. His singles Child and Run Alone had cracked the top 30, and Boys Like You had peaked at number three. This wasn't a fluke or a one-hit wonder. He had hits. He was in the top 10 albums and singles. He was nominated for six arias, including Album of the Year, and he took home the Breakthrough Artist Award. All the battles, the shows in front of 20 people, the hours, days, and weeks at his home studio, it had all finally paid off. 360's life had changed permanently. But the changes weren't all for the better. It was, it was funny growing up when before I really did have any success, I romanticised the idea of being a heroin addict. Like that's how much I idolised people like Anthony Kiedis and Motley Crue and stuff like that. Like I worshipped them. Like they, they were like rock stars and I wanted to live that rock star life. Like I was like I'm going to do all sorts of drugs and do everything. I want to live the exact same life that they did. And she's really sad thinking back that that that's even a possible thing to entertain but I was just like I'm going for it I want to live it and live that life and I did like I really really did live that life I was just all about partying and having a good time and then when it came to um the success it was like you had you come into a bunch of money suddenly you don't have to stop and wait till payday to keep partying you can just keep going you know, and it just went on. It was just like a one big bender. Sixty had worked tirelessly for years to reach this summit. He had the fame, the success, the access to whatever he wanted, and the freedom to live his life on his own terms, however dangerous those terms were. On the outside, though, the fans couldn't get enough of Australia's new rap star. It all kind of changed and felt like it was like really hitting a tipping point after the hottest 100. I just remember after that, after that, you know, point in Australia Day 2012, whatever that was, it was just like complete, um, just pandemonium. I think it was the day that album came out. I was like, I posted saying, all right, I'm going to be at JB Hi-Fi on Burke Street. Come and meet me there and I'll, I'll get photos or sign some shit or something like that. And it just ended up going mental like the whole street was packed and they had to call the cops and someone said I could have been charged with causing a riot by not organizing it like properly by just posting that and I could have been charged with with inciting inciting a riot or something which was wild it was such a great connection with the fans that it was like they felt like we were, we were all fucking going to war, you know what I mean? Like it was like, let's do this, like, let's 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 go. And everyone was so pumped and ready for it, you know. It was everyone was with it. It was sick. There was no organisation. He was just going to go there, and it was fucking pandemonium, you know, like a dangerous pandemonium, overwhelming the JB staff. You know, very dangerous in in parts, I think. You know, like having that amount of kids on Burke Street, I think that was crazy. And, he, and then he did that a couple of other times. And I think maybe Ian, EMI Cotton Don were like, we should maybe officially organise these things now. But he did one at Eastland, yeah, because it was... Because he's obviously from Ringwood. And I think maybe the official one at Eastland, I remember there being thousands of kids. What's up? This is Steve. I'm your host on Classic Material. 
I'm having a great time reliving those days in the mid-2000s, a time when I used to hook up a full color-coordinated outfit. From the Jordans to the fitted cap, the oversized jersey, everything matched. And the finishing touch was always the G-Shock. I had a bunch of different colors to match different sneakers. But the G-Shock isn't some relic from the past. G-Shocks are still as durable as ever, but now they also measure your heart rate, VO2 max, and more. You can still sync them with your outfit, but now you can sync them to your phone too. Take a look at the range today at gshock.com.au. This was the culmination of all 360's work. It wasn't just the music, the mixtapes, the viral content, giving fans time and engaging on social media. It was everything. These weren't just people who enjoyed his tracks. These were ride-or-die fans. And they were everywhere. We heard from Litigate in episode one, the host of Hip Hop Nights Around Melbourne and a very early supporter of 360. He remembers the moment he realised 60 had made it, when he witnessed both the good and the bad. I think the moment that I remember, and it's funny, it'll be a lot earlier than I imagine people would pinpoint on a map, but I remember the peak of 60's fame as in the not necessarily in sales or in selling out shows or whatever, but in fanaticism. In this gig that he did at the ESPY, I showed up to this fucking gig and I couldn't believe how many non-hip-hop fans were there, which was like the first sign. Like it was just kids who loved him, like not hip-hop, they just loved 60. And I was on the steps out the front and 60 showed up and I was just like, what the fuck is going on? You know, I gave him a big hug and I was stoked for him. And he was both exhilarated and elated, but I could also tell that there was a part of him that was utterly overwhelmed by the intensity that he was facing. Like, it was crazy. And he did the show, which was, in some ways, the greatest show I've ever seen, just because of the fucking charisma he had on stage. He forgot the words to almost every single song he did and just freestyled them, but was hilarious. Was like crowd walking out, a punch-on broke out in the crowd at one point and he ended up just like pleading with the dudes to stop and pulling one of them on stage and giving them a hug and shit. Like it was this unbelievable like cult leader-like charisma that he was oozing, but I could tell that he was not fully comfortable with it either, like totally comfortable with getting up and smashing these shows and, you know, certainly didn't dent his um, charisma in any way, shape or form. In fact, it kind of fed it and gave him this almost like like godlike status to these kids. But it was, I could tell the intensity of it was eating at the dude that I knew and really loved and knew really well, which was Matt Colwell rather than kind of 360. And, um, yeah, I could I could feel it at that moment. Litigate wasn't the only one to notice that 60's newfound fame was as much a gift as it was a curse. Longtime friend Justice, who in episode one was kicking it at Mo's parents' place with 60, working on music and dreaming of fame, remembers making the realisation that it came at a cost. I remember one night we were in Crown Casino, walking through the gambling floor and then um, we're heading somewhere in Crown for, for dinner. I remember just the whole time people were just coming up and parents coming up saying, hey, can my, can my kid have a photo and all this kind of stuff. It was this weird thing because it was like on the one hand, this is the shit that we all wanted. Like we were looking at it like, hey, this is what 60 had been working towards. This is what all of us, you know, really wanted. And so there was part of us that was like, I don't know, a sense of pride. But at the same time, this sense of like, oh shit, like, you know, 
this is not as enjoyable as it seems. I mean, it's fine for us. Like, you know, it didn't impact us. It was more just looking at six and the impact it kind of had on him. He never said it because he's like such a nice dude and he would never say no to a photo or anything like that. But you could tell on on in on his face and deep inside, he was kind of just like, hey, I just want to sit here and just enjoy a meal. Styles also remembers the difficulty of spending time with a celebrity. If you went out with him during the daytime or any time really, it was just like like you were going to be his personal photographer or like some kind of like a minder security type person who just had to like fend people off. It was like, it was just one of those situations. I've never really experienced it with anyone else, but he would go out and then just like get mobbed by like 50 kids just wherever he went. So like, it's just like, he just wasn't prepared for, for that kind of interaction. The, the stages of fame were very hard to deal with. Like initially it's fun. And it's like you're living it up and it's, you know, it's cool, but you get over it very, very quickly. And the levels of it was were, were wild because it, it, it went from like, you know, I could, I used to go to the city all the time and I might get people come up to me just for a photo every now and then. And then when we started dropping shit more, it was like all the time, everywhere you go really kind of thing. So I became more and more reserved and stayed home a lot more. But then it got to the point when it was really, really popping off and it was like, dude, kids screaming and crying and chasing the car and like people following me home and filming me and like paparazzi it like just weird very weird weird behavior and um yeah it, it, it's funny how it's like when you're popping like that it's just like what the hell's going on this is so weird like I'm just the same person, but everything's just flipped on its head. You know what I mean? And everyone changes. Everyone changes. Like when someone's really popping like that, your your people don't treat you the same anymore, you know? People that change, though, eventually realise it's not a big deal. It's just that my music got played on the radio. I'm still the exact same person, but it's crazy how a lot of people put people that have, you know, some fame or have been in the spotlight on a pedestal. Like there's some elite person, but they're not. A lot of times they're definitely not, you know. Um, but it's that that treatment is is intense, you know, and having to, you know, move house because of people knowing where I live because I was living in an apartment complex and that was um, that was just f- so frustrating when it's, you know, people going benders and you're getting people rocking up to your door all the time and, and knocking at all hours of the night and it's just, you know, very, very, very crazy. But very, you know, it it's interesting looking back, like I talked to people about it and, they say, would you change it? And I was like, I wouldn't change anything, but, you know, it is what it is. It is just, it just makes life a little bit more difficult. Like I'm, I've, I went from being someone who was a very outgoing, um, extroverted, I reckon, extremely. And then now I'm very much introverted, um, 
and I st- I'm just very reclusive at home. I hated going out with friends because I'd always ruined the night. Like, went from being able to like, go on a seven-night club with Mo and that all the time and just partying and living it up and loving loving it and shit like that. Then if I start tried to go out with them, it would turn into this big thing where, you know, everyone's surrounded getting photos and they're kind of... It, it, it ruined the fun of the night. We couldn't really just enjoy it. Um, it is, in, and yeah, it has it has a profound impact. And I, I, one thing, I, like people wouldn't, people just could never un, never understand it until they've gone through it. I think. Just as sixty was struggling to balance fame and friendship, his friends were on the other side, trying to give sixty the space he needed and being conscious of not encroaching on his time or being perceived as hangers-on. I think the other thing that I, I remember as well is is probably more like what happened for me with all of that because there was this feeling inside where it's like with him becoming so big, I would always just be so conscious and second-guess like my intentions. And the last thing I ever wanted was for Six to feel like I was friends with him or I was hitting him up or I was doing anything because of what he'd achieved musically, because of what was going on. We obviously were like super close friends way before any of that was even remotely possible, like when it was just a dream. And so like I had this internal monologue just going, oh, you know, I want to make sure Sixty doesn't think that that's something that has ever crossed my mind. But in hindsight, when I think about it now, like, it actually kind of had the opposite effect because it meant that like rather than just hitting him up anytime I wanted or reaching out to him whenever, I'd always second guess that stuff. And it's kind of like it's a bit lame to kind of admit, but just this feeling of like, you know what, I don't want to bother this guy. He's probably busy or I don't want him to think that I'm just reaching out because I, I want to get some of that rub or I want to get some of that shine. So I think, you know, for me and, and you know, um, sadly, we're not nearly as close now as we used to be. And I haven't really spoken to him in a long time. But uh, I think part of it, like it's it's my fault in the sense that those were the things that were kind of governing my behavior. And so in fear of all of that, it just meant that I probably just didn't reach out as much. The impact that it seemed to have on him and then the impact that it had on me, it's kind of a, a sad thing. It's a shame. But I also don't want to discount just how fucking incredible it was watching him blow up, like in his ascent towards that the excitement that we had, like hearing his songs on the radio, hearing him in an interview, like there was just such a buzz amongst our friendship group and like just this feeling that it could not have happened to a better person who had just invested all his chips and put all his chips in on this one thing and it's working out. Like that feeling for us was amazing. So it was kind of like, I don't know, it was like a tale of two halves, so to speak, where it was the ascent was euphoric and then once you kind of got to that peak, it was a little bit, this isn't as fun as maybe we, we thought it was going to be. His friends didn't want to get in 60's way, and 60 didn't want his fame to ruin a fun night out with his friends. The result was being isolated from his closest relationships. Just as this was happening, Mo remembers everyone else wanted a piece of 360, and 360 was doing his best to give every bit of himself, regardless of what it might cost. Man, go, go on any artist page, bro, any artist page, and you'll, you'll see comments like, your album got me through this, you know, traumatic experience and you're, you're you know, he, but he would respond and engage with them and chat with them and, and that would weigh heavy, man. I think all of that giving himself out kind of took away from 
having time for himself. Six is genuinely is a nice dude, man. So he'll try to help where he can help. I always had this view, man, that you'd have your entertainment persona and then just be you in the background. Like you don't have to engage in all these people. You don't have to respond to positive or negative comments. And and I think that if you let that hit you in the chest and you respond to it, then, you know, it takes from you, man. It takes from from your overall being as a as a human to be able to put up with all this shit and mm. like you know not think bad about yourself sometimes when you're in the dumps because you've got a thousand people reinforcing that you're shit for some reason you know 360 was seeing his friends less he was forced to move house fans were following him in the streets and paparazzi wouldn't leave him alone the price of fame hit quickly and it hit hard and coupled with the drain of his online activity where he juggled both fans and trolls, it was all becoming too heavy to handle. Desperate to regain control, 60s drug use escalated. It was, you know, reaching moments where I was partying all the time, but I didn't quite know that I was was addicted. Like, I remember when I went to Canada and I battled Kid Twist and I choked. It was like a horrible experience. It still haunts me today. Like, I still have moments where I think about it. Because what happened was I was using a lot of like codeine and a lot of Oxycontin and shit like that. And when I went to Canada to battle, I didn't realise that I needed it, you know, like otherwise I'd start getting sick. So I went to Canada and I just started getting fucking all these chills and just going through withdrawals and I did the worst thing possible. I got like a quarter of cocaine and just, no, 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 no eight ball and or it might be the same thing. It just ended up going really hard. And when you're in that kind of state and you do something like coke, it didn't make me feel good. It made me feel anxious. Like it made me feel even worse. And then I was trying to drink the nerves down and it was just, I just lost everything that I had in my head as far as what I was going to say to him. And that was horrible. That was a horrible experience to go through in just such an embarrassing moment. But the partying, like you don't realise that it, it gets dark very quickly out of nowhere it's all fun and games but then it just gets very very dark and it just feels like it's out of nowhere you're just suddenly in this rut that you're just like what the fuck is going on i'm hiding it from everyone you know like everyone knew i was really loose and i loved like getting on the bags and and drinking and i'd always be the last one standing every time and then everyone would be like oh no we've had enough so i'd go to someone else and just keep partying with them and um yeah, it definitely takes its toll and it'd be very interesting to know what would have happened if I didn't do that, all that stuff, you know. While Sixty remembers trying to hide it from everyone, his friends, including Pez, remember the toll that all the partying took. Not enough people talk about that, but I think it, like there's that magic that's pouring out of him, but the drugs take a lot of that. Like, you got to be careful. Like, it's it's so normalised now and, like, people just think, oh, it's fine, it's all this shit. But it did a lot of damage to a lot of us. For a long time, like, everything that was 60 was kind of gone because you become a bit of a ghost. You're like a shell. And I had the same thing. Like, there's this lightness to him back then. So it was, you know, you want it really bad and, it, and there's heavy moments, there's downs, there's all that shit. But he always had this spark and this this joyful like this lightness to him and I think that's what a lot of people connected with too early on but yeah I think price of drugs price of fame all that shit can kind of 
fuck your psyche up and then right at the pinnacle of it when you need to just keep pressing through, it can all sort of start to unravel if you don't have the right support network in place and all that. I think in hindsight, I didn't understand the gravity of the situation and what he was going through because I think 60 was always, at least externally, like such a resilient dude. We would go out and like, you know, party pretty hard during that time and he'd always seem fine. Like if anything, we were always like struggling to keep up and stuff like that. And, you know, if anything, that's probably one of the warning signs, but it was kind of this, I don't know, you know, always just thinking and feeling, oh, you know, 60's all right, 60's fine. He can handle this stuff. And so I definitely felt like there was something going on because, you know, he wasn't as responsive as he used to be. And sadly, like I probably didn't check in as much as I should have checked in and been a bit more forceful about that because of what I said before. Like I didn't want him to think that I was pestering him or annoying him or like, you know, trying to hang on to his coattails or anything like that, you know, and and I think that kind of immaturity on my side, that kind of influenced me being able to actually see what was really going on for him. So, you know, I think I knew there was stuff going on, but I didn't understand the gravity, probably not until, and this is a sad thing for, for me to admit, but not until he became really open with it publicly did I really understand the extent of it. Like there's definitely times and, you know, you'd speak to friends and stuff and I would always reach out to other friends and Mo like have you spoken to 60 lately is, is everything okay and stuff but um, yeah it wasn't until like late, much later that I realized shit you know he went through some stuff and I probably should have done more. I don't think anything prepares anyone for that level of fame right? and, and all of this sudden success. Matt is an amazing person, amazing human to his core, Matt is a, a great person, but I do think that that fundamentally changed him. You can talk about drugs and booze and all that stuff as well, but I think kind of having the spotlight on you 24-7, having all this success and then maybe starting to think about how to follow it, you know, like all of those things can really mess with people's heads, you know, and it takes, that takes experience, I think it takes strength and character to kind of keep going after that. And to his credit, it's taken a long time, but to his credit, he's pulled through as a person. He's healthy now, but but he wasn't healthy for a long time there after that. It's now been 10 years since the release of Falling and Flying. 60 has regained his health, and he's released two albums since the runaway success of his 2011 album. With the clarity of hindsight, it's clear to 360 what he would change about his trajectory to the top. Mm. Man, it's interesting because I think about it now, and I've talked to people about this, like about, you know, I don't think I'd want that level of success. I would want that level of success, don't get me wrong. Like I want to sell those kind of numbers, but I don't want what comes with it. I would like to be able to just now make really, really, really good music and just live life. I don't really want to get it on that kind of level where it's popping so much that you can't go anywhere but, uh, yeah, it's given me a lot of perspective looking back. The impact of the album's success is quite different for Styles, who looks back at Falling and Flying as the moment he could finally prove what he had known all along. He was a great songwriter and producer. I listened to the album a couple of weeks ago for the first time in about seven or eight years. I kind of like got emotional when I was like listening to, listening to the first few songs. Just like, I don't know if it's just bringing back memories of the time and just just the whole 
process and being like, fuck, we made this out. I'm like, it's made me like, some of it made me emotional just because I, you know, it really took me back to like, to those moments when we were making it, all the memories of actually like creating it and being so like free with the, with the creative output on it. And I mean, the, the feedback is everything. And it's, I guess it, the, the feedback makes you realize that what you're what you're doing has has actual value like when you hear hear like a big artist sing your melodies or sing your ideas and it goes crazy like and it it really translate in that way as well that's when you kind of stuck going well fuck it wasn't that that my ideas were wrong or like off it was more so the people that i was working with were the wrong outlet for it Falling and Flying was a success for 60 and Styles. But on a higher level, this was the album that legitimised Australian hip-hop for major labels and mainstream radio. As we covered back in episode one, the major labels could never figure it out. Mainstream success was a pipe dream for Australian hip-hop acts, and major labels saw it as little more than a novelty. That all changed with Falling and Flying, as Craig Hawker explains. We see now within all the labels they have their own hip-hop A&R specialists who are in there playing that role and trying to find and nurture the next artist coming through and before that there were very few hip-hop specialists within with any of the majors that legacy yeah is how much more diverse the scene has become since falling and flying did come out The diversity in the Australian scene is the story of the last 10 years. Prior to Falling and Flying, artists rarely dared to step out of the well-established mould of the consummate Australian rapper. As Justice explains, 360 broke that mould, encouraged everyone to do the same, and changed Australian hip-hop forever. I think that album gave a lot of people permission to not try and fit a mould. At that time, there was such a template for successful hip-hop in Australia and there were, there were boundaries that you had to work within for it to kind of feel like it was accepted and to feel like it had any chance of getting any kind of notoriety. There was a big thing in, in Australian hip-hop at the time around respecting what came before. There was this need to like, hey, you've got to respect what came before, you've got to respect the culture and the scene and the sound and I think 60 showed that there's a way to do that but create something that feels completely new. And I think a lot of the new, the newer artists that are coming through um, have him and that album to thank for just opening the door to, to what is actually accepted and what's possible within the scene. So I think it changed how creative people were. It changed what the wider community saw as, as Australian hip hop. Like it kind of changed people's perceptions of, of the genre. But I think for me, it's like the permission that it granted to a, to a lot of other people to just be creative and, and do something different is probably the biggest thing. Wheeze continues to manage hip-hop artists in Australia and is often reminded of the impact of falling and flying as he works with artists who were shaped by the album in their formative years. I think it changed the way that people thought about Australian hip-hop for sure or the way that Australian hip-hop could be packaged and presented. It gave a generation of kids like aspiration to do something different. I think that's what it really did. I still speak to young rappers here or rappers who would have been sort of coming up in that era and that was their favourite shit. And that trips me out. You know, I think about that and they're like, that was my album. You know, like, I love that shit. Litigate looks back on the time fondly 
and remembers it as the time Australia finally had its own homegrown hip-hop star. We wouldn't have anywhere near the level of acclaim and the scene that we have now if it wasn't for Falling and Flying. And also I just think that idea of uh, a rapper as celebrity in this country hadn't really occurred before either. Like, the Hilltop Hoods were huge, but they weren't celebrities as people. Their music was adored. Bliss and Esso, you know, kind of flipped a bit that way, but still it was it was much more about that music. With 60, people loved him. They loved him, the man, as well as loving his music. They loved him, the personality, and that was something that just hadn't been seen before. 360 reluctantly agrees with what his peers have said about the impact of his album and is excited about the future of Australian hip-hop. Well, I hate saying... I I feel uncomfortable when I talk about myself in a way that where I'm mentioning accolades or, you know, hyping it up, but it feels bizarre to say this, but I feel like it was a game-changer and it changed the game forever and it made a lot of people... Like, the amount of people that have hit me up that are people that are quite popping now and said that if it wasn't for that album, I wouldn't be doing the stuff that I am now because you made me realise I don't have to do the Aussie hip-hop sound. I can actually do whatever I want. I can do what I want to do without being shunned. And now it's like there's so many people in Australia that are doing all sorts of... If you want to rap like Necro and do that kind of stuff, if you're good at it, you will get a good fan base. If you want to do... Right, whatever, any type of sound, the new modern wave, more mumble rap kind of sound or the more melodic stuff, like you can do it. If you're good at it, people are going to notice, you know, and I, I love that the Australian scene is at where it's at now. I feel like it's exciting and to to have the feeling of I, I impacted the game so much in Australia like that is just so bizarre and surreal. It's really cool. It's a really cool thing. In 2022, Australian hip-hop is thriving. We have artists from across the country, from different cultural backgrounds, with different stories to tell. And everyone's free to jump in the booth, tell their story, and make it sound however they want it to sound. And like 60 says, if they're good, people will notice. This is the impact of falling and flying. Yes, it legitimized the genre on a mainstream level, but more importantly, on the grassroots level, it rewrote the rules of participating in Australian hip-hop. And it was all due to 60s determination and self-belief. Styles remembers way back to the beginning of the project, when, during a meeting with EMI, the then little-known Australian rap artist 360 was asked what his aspirations were with his album. This is such a vivid memory. I think he, he 60 had done a, a performance, like a showcase or something, and we went and we got loose that night and we went in the next morning and we were all just like just a complete mess. Um, we went into the meeting and kind of all just like sitting there dying at the at the conference table or whatever. And uh, someone said to 60, like, where do you see this album going? And just tell us like the end goal for this whole thing. And he goes, I want like a multi-platinum album. I want to win multiple arias like all this shit and he was like we're so hungover i was sitting there i remember sitting there being like like bro you're talking so much shit <laughs> like like i i just felt like so hungover but also like relaxed bro you're like going off of a fucking tangent right now and like everything you said happened and more from that moment and this was so early too it was this was like 
maybe a year before we'd finished the album or something. So it was it was such like pipe dream type shit. I looked around the room and everyone was like, okay, that's nice. No one had any idea that what he was saying could actually be a complete reality and beyond. It's wild. Sixties Falling and Flying is available now on all streaming platforms. Classic Material is a co-production of Acclaim Magazine and Complex AU. Written, researched, and narrated by Steve Duck from Complex AU. Edited by Posterboy Media. Executive producer Andrew Montel for Archetype Media. <laughs>